My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Everywhere. I'm your host, Daniel Scheffler. I was always traveling from the beginning in my very young mother's belly, moseying around Southern Africa with Ron Stewart as a soundtrack to our life together. Maybe this is why 30 plus years later, I have such a bush of hair on my head. I don't know. Perhaps more importantly, this is why I feel like travel is so much a part of who I am. Not in the obvious, let's ask Daniel for some travel advice on where to eat in, insert city here, but in a much deeper way. So Mae West was speaking to me when she said, and I paraphrase, good boys go to heaven, bad boys go everywhere. Today's travel commandment Thou shalt know your starting point. I always say my birth mother is Norma Jean, not quite Marilyn Monroe. But what she did do is travel with wild abandon. Topless, with the wind through her breasts. She was in Africa, and so it all felt so free to her. Okay, let's establish this right now. Africa's like that. It helps you lose those strange inhibitions you tend to hoard over time. Remember when you were just a wee lass or lad. You just tried everything twice, and again if you wanted to, and you did it all without thinking about it too much. And here you are today and you're questioning whether to go to age-old incredible Mexico because the media sparks fear in you over some border situation. There's something about that scarlet, bloody soil of Africa that stays in my being. I leave again and again, and somehow being born in Africa means you always get tugged home. That, like, umbilical cord is so taut. I know it when I get off the plane and I smell that air. It alters me every time. No matter where I've come from, it smells like the bushveld, like, everywhere. Animal sweat, fecunt. The... Clouds are extra enormous, and when the afternoon rolls in, just as you're thinking about a lovely tea time, they do a dance of storms. It's louder than what your ears think they can handle, and it's wetter than any rain you've ever felt. Big drops tasked to clean your soul, and they come with such a riotous frenzy, and all your shit's washed away. The drill is always the same. I kick off my shoes and I find my feet bare in the sand or soil or dust somewhere. And it immediately roots right there. My feet become the very beginning of life as we know it. It taps into centuries of humanity and all its cruelty and beauty. Only Africa can make you cry and laugh all at once. I'm not supposing that Africa doesn't have its problems, and I'm not suggesting that just because I was born on the continent that somehow, miraculously, I understand it better than 
I don't know, the Khoi San or others that have been there before me, who have spent centuries reveling in it, protecting it. On the contrary, I'm a white boy from Africa. I can partially see both the sword and the shield. I read this beautiful line in in Wild, the Cheryl Strayed book, and she was talking to Oprah and they were having this conversation and she said something like, the wilderness has a clarity that included me. Okay, sure, granted. She was talking about the Pacific Crest Trail, but that somehow stayed with me. Africa shows you exactly that. Ponder about that gorgeous sentence once more. Isn't the thing we're all looking for, and maybe the reason we even leave to journey across oceans and even now space, just a little more inclusion, please? So I think my birth mother must have stuffed me with some of those liberty genes. I'm always climbing up a Land Rover so I can watch the wild dogs play, or running up a hill so I can see the nearby islands or some open plains. And then there are these endless mountains I'm hiking up to see what I can see from there. In fact, whenever I get to a city, besides for finding a pour-over coffee specifically, which I'll share more details with you in a moment, I try and find a rooftop or a hilltop or a uppy-uppy situation to observe just what I'm dealing with. Let me demonstrate. So think about a city like Santiago, Chile. You hike a little mountain, which is right downtown, and of course there's like an enormous religious statue looking down at you, possibly judging you, and this is where you can survey almost the entire city and those incredible Andes in the distance. So that's how I understand it, and I'm able to swallow it. Let's think about another place, like um, Birmingham, Alabama, that has the Roman god of fire, Vulcan, on a hilltop right downtown, gleaming down at the southern heyday glimmer of a hope city. That's the first thing I did as I arrived. I went to hold hands with this cast-iron, burly, bearded, bare-bottomed man so that I could really see the city. Well, actually, I lie. The first thing I did as I got off the plane in Alabama was to go to a gas station in this tiny little town annexed to Birmingham for barbecue. Gas and a rib. I was eating flesh at this point, and I'm much more plant-orientated at the moment for all kinds of reasons we could definitely debate. Life is simpler when you can drive a truck full of gas and eat a piece of meat, I was told by the man behind a smoker. But let's get back to the pour over coffee. When I'm traveling, before I arrive somewhere new, whether it's Atlanta, Alaska, or Australia, I put into the little Google search bar the following phrase, pour over coffee, enter city here, and I press search. So the theory is that if they serve pour-over from a Chemex or maybe a V60 and even an Aeropress, they probably, in lots of certainty, take their beans seriously. So then you know, and this is what I know, is that I will find not only a fantastic cup of coffee, but probably people who also give a shit about their cup. And if we found naked coffee, I'm kidding. But seriously, of course there's nothing I love more than bearing some skin. I'm not saying that I'm a nudist or anything, but since 23andMe says I have some very serious German roots, 
we could do a whole episode dedicated to the German love for Baden-Bader Ohne Kleinder. I, of course, proposed to my New Jersey Italian husband in the nude. We were leisurely swimming off the coast of Sicily, near some terribly old ruins in Agrigento. There were Dover-style cliffs over to the left and some fucking crazy Game of Thrones castles to the right in a place called the lovely-sounding Reserva Naturale di Punta Bianca in my best Italian. So think about it. Proposing while travel, well, that makes sense. That's what you want to do. In the nude, even more sense. Whilst you're traveling, maybe your guard is down a little and you're more open to something. The dog isn't waiting for you to take her out. And there's some magic shit that's about to happen. Well, travel gives you that little opening cranny in the universe to promise your whole heart to someone. And my Jersey boy is always busy. It's hard to get his full attention on anything. I mean, let's not even try and get his undivided attention. But you know, a deserted, soft, pebbly beach with waves quietly kissing your feet and inviting you in for a dip in the nude? Hell yes, that held his attention. Not because it's dramatic and not because it's a selfie-inducing moment, but because we were there together and the skies opened up and gave us this private moment to share our love, just us. And that was the starting point like no other. Michael and I starting a life together, just like the one my bio mom had envisioned. And then a life was changed forever. I'm going to pause this right here for a moment for our sponsors to weigh in. But do come back to hear more about where I've been scooting around this week. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trade tables up. You're returning to everywhere land. That's my experience with Sicily now. I also like to think about it in terms of now and then. So I'm inviting my dear friend Holly onto the show to give us the then. Yeah, so we're only going to focus on a little bit of then because history, of course, is very rich in Sicily. There is a lot to discuss and talk about. And this is going to sound perhaps a bit almost morbid, 
compared to your story, but there's a reason I want to go there. I want to talk a little bit about its military history. Great. Uh, there are ruins near where you proposed to your beloved. I saw them. <laughs> you saw them. Maybe didn't fully process them. No, I was not processing them. Mind elsewhere. Totally understandable. Uh, the Deluti military battery is there, and that has been there since early on in the 20th century. It was built between 1915 and 1923, so around World War I. But what we really want to talk about in terms of what makes Sicily important in world history is World War II. I thought you were going to say the wine culture. <laughs> All the delicious prosciutto. Yeah. No, no, also very important on both points. But when Sicily was invaded by the Allies on July 10th, 1943, that was known as Operation Husky, it was a very, very important moment in the war. It's one of those places that I think, again, to Western ears, we think of Sicily as a very small part of the world or a small part of Europe, but it was really pivotal. That actually is considered by many historians to be one of the most important Anglo-American campaigns of the war. For one, it was the first time that the Western Allies made an assault on what was called Fortress Europe, in essence. And it also became this important experiential learning curve for the, the Allied forces. Like, they took from that a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience and a lot of learning that they then could apply to the rest of the war going forward. But here is the thing that, to me, is always very, very important. Whenever we talk about historical wars or any military action, it's really easy to lose sight of the fact that those are real people involved. We tend to talk about, you know, the dates and the names and how power changed, but there were young men there that didn't all make it out. The Allies had 23,000 casualties at Sicily. That is a lot of people. That is still the smallest number that I'm about to use in this quick statistics list. German forces had 30,000 casualties, but the Italians had 135,000. And 100,000 Axis troops were captured. So those were a lot of young men. But here's really why it ended up shifting part of the war. Because at this point, by the spring of 1943, Mussolini was in some trouble. Like, his own people were, <laughs> were starting to rise against him. There were opposition groups that were forming. There were people that were saying, like, I really think we should make peace with the Allies. <laughs> I really think we should broker some sort of situation and get out of this war. So, I have prosciutto and wine to get back right, to. Right, let's all be cool. Who wouldn't prefer that? I, it's hard for me to understand why anyone would want otherwise. But the problem was that there was a lot of German military presence in Italy at the time. So it wasn't like they could just easily go, nope, we're voting on this. We have changed our minds. We're washing our hands of this war. They couldn't. There were German forces literally everywhere. So that is sort of why this becomes so pivotal. Uh, Sicily had been part of Italy since 1860, so it was considered a very important part of the country. What was it before? So before that, it was ruled by the Bourbons, and it was considered a, a different municipality. And then it actually merged with the Kingdom of Sardinia in 1860, technically, and then uh, became part of the Kingdom of Italy officially in 1861. This is why all the American Italians go to Sicily, to uncover all this history. Yeah, and it's kind of like the heartland in many ways. And also, we've discussed the delicious things that come from there. Right. Uh, <laughs> Let's go right now. Holly. Happily. Put down those headphones. Let's go. <laughs> you don't really have to ask me thrice, but don't ask me a second time because we got to finish this segment. So <laughs> when uh, this invasion happened, what was happening in Rome 
was that this was really such a hard hit on Italy, particularly, again, considering those casualty numbers, that Mussolini's government began to just collapse. And so two weeks after the Allies invaded Sicily on July 25th, he was forced to resign by the fascist Grand Council. Uh, He was actually arrested that day. And in essence, this removed Italy from the war, from the their little Axis agreement, and they were no longer part of it. And that meant one more country that the Allies were not fighting. So that made it very, very important. What's really, really lovely, though, is that there has been this— I'm just waiting for the loveliness to come. There's loveliness coming. Military history is often really dark, but I think very important. You can't turn away from those things because they are part of our shared history. Uh, In the 20-teens, an effort started to make it into a nature preserve. At this point, like— you saw them. The The military buildings there have all largely collapsed or, you know, crumbled. So environmental groups uh, convened in Palermo in 2015. They actually asked the Italian army to also be part of these because they wanted to make sure that the military history of the area was documented just as they were preserving all of the, the natural things that have grown there. They also want to make sure we don't lose any of that in the process. But what I really love about your story and why this is so important to me to talk about these unfortunate things that happened there and these young men that lost their lives there is that because this is a place that has seen blood and pain and horror, and yet you have found it to be a place that is nothing but beauty and charm and magic. Love. And you add to that by sharing your love with someone else there and then in turn sharing it with us. So to me, like, these are the moments that redeem the ugliness of humanity is that people— find a way to get through that, and then build something else beautiful in those same spots. Holly, I know you're crying, but I'm going to cry. <laughs> like, that's how I feel. I mean, when I proposed to Michael, I wasn't planning for it to be necessarily on a military area. But now that you told me this, my proposal to him and our love together is somehow more meaningful to me. Like, somehow, like, the two of us, two men in the freedom of the 21st century can come and be together and a love found at a place which is wasn't about love, was about fear and about hatred. Yeah, you have made this place where a lot of young men died into a place where young men shared love. And to me, that's what makes it magical. That's what makes traveling the way you do such a beautiful thing. Like you can heal these spaces where bad things have happened in some ways. And in absolute the same vein, the place can heal you. Yes. Like that's why I find myself trying to leave my house and pack a bag and climb on another flight is in fact the possibility that I could get healed. And then there's this beautiful synergy where that place now is so unbelievably beautiful that it also heals you in return. And you kind of create this this beautiful um, infinity of sort of a, a healing energy that goes back and forth. That sounds a little hippie or dippier than I usually get. But I think to build on really your whole message, right? Like you have the opportunity when you travel to heal places with your own love. Like that's part of what makes humanity great as a counterpoint to all the things that can sometimes make humanity not so great. So thank you for adding love to the world and to that part of the world in particular. I love that you're crying, Holly. I cry I'm about over to everything. Cry. You could throw glitter in the air and yell kittens and I'll probably cry, but this is to me very meaningful. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with more travel from everywhere. Every family has skeletons in their closet. 
mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The time has come for more of everywhere. Now, where were we? Welcome back. I was in Washington, D.C. recently interviewing Stephanie Stiebisch, the director of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. We spent the morning chatting about using art as a way to better understand America. And I could listen to her for the rest of my life. Hi, Stephanie. Hello, Um, Daniel. It is so lovely to be in D.C. with you. And thank you for having me. I wish I could offer you a perfect day. Yesterday was a perfect day for the cherry blossoms. It's true. I saw some cherry blossoms and I'm thrilled to be in D.C. at this time of the year. I've never done it before. So, Well, once you see the cherry blossoms, that uh, it suggests a return visit. Sort of like seeing Mount Fuji tells Easy. you that you're going to return to Easy. Japan. Tell me exactly what you do in D.C., Stephanie. Uh, I work at the Smithsonian which is best described uh, in four words, everything under the sun. And if you know the Smithsonian, it's a sun symbol, so that works well for us. But in truth, it is the uh, largest museum and research complex in the world. And in the family of Smithsonian museums, of which there are 19, I run two of them. Can we back up one second? I want to talk about crafting. Before moving to America, I had never crafted anything. For me, crafting is this very American thing. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about crafting as an American thing. Well, Daniel, I think uh, language is important. So when we talk about craft, craft can be both a noun, the object, the crafted object, and it also can be a verb, the way you're using it. And I would say today in particular, we're living in the midst of a um, maker's movement. Right, like Etsy. Etsy, craft beer, you know, handcrafted breads, artisanal, you know, back to the making of the hand. And if you know your history, which I imagine you do. No, terrible. uh, There was the Industrial Revolution and there was a counter-revolution. So just as things were becoming mechanized and, and, um, you know, made the same, which in many ways was an innovation in and of itself to repeat in making the exact same kind of object, there was a counter-movement led by artists, of course, to go back to the handmade, to go back to the human scale. And that, of course, took place mostly in the realm of craft, whether it was uh, wallpaper by William Morris or crafted objects and furniture like Gustav Stickley here in the United States or pottery or ironwork. That was a, a moment at the turn of the 19th century. Now, of course, we live in a moment where, once again, I would say we almost don't know how things are made anymore. So some days I want to go back to the handmade. It is uh, meditative. It is quiet. And we even see it in the industrial world. Have you been to a Nike store recently? I have. 
they now have a counter in many of them that invite you to make your own custom I just Nikes. Did that. Exactly. Now, some people are terrified that I would like just the regular choices. Others are excited to be invited to create their own versions. And I think it speaks a little bit to identity. America is very distinctive, as you know, in your travels. Uh, one place feels very different than another place, and yet it can feel the same, right? We have, we've shared malls across the country. Sometimes it's comforting to travel, uh, again, as I did as a child, and know there would be the comforts of a holiday inn everywhere you went. There was a, a happy sameness, or even McDonald's. I know the menu. And again, with every movement, I think there's always a happy counter movement. And then suddenly you felt, well, shouldn't I be seeing something that's unique to this place? Uh, Whether, again, it's food or or fashion or architecture. And uh, that's why I'm such a big fan of when you travel, you should go to museums. I fully agree. We should talk about that a lot. Indeed. And not just art museums, which talk about the creativity of a place, of a region, of a moment. But I like going to um, Charlotte, North Carolina and going to the Museum of the New South and learning about how air conditioning forever changed the South. Not something I thought about before I had gone into that museum and saw a fabulous exhibition on that topic. Well, isn't that the point of your museum, this very museum we're in? Like it inspires you to travel America and beyond in ways that you may not have thought about. People travel and they don't realize that museums are egalitarian. It's for everybody. There's nothing to be scared of of a museum. I certainly think so. I always um, am fascinated by the house in which the museum sits. There's a great movement to create new museums, and they often are in brand new buildings with fabulous architecture, often signature architecture. And of course, also museums are set in historic buildings. That's our case. We sit in the old patent office, which is actually one of the most spectacular buildings, a great example of Greek revival architecture. But more importantly, it's the house of American ingenuity. The driving force of America in many ways is entrepreneurship, is creating new things, is mechanization, is um, making improvements. So, of course, you'd expect to see a few patents that we have still kept here in some of the wonderful shelves of the old patent office building. One of my favorites to point out to people is an effort to improve the mousetrap. Why do you think people don't understand museums? People travel to all over the world and you're like, yeah, I should go to the museum. And it's almost an obligation. Like, oh, I like, I guess I'm here in Barcelona. Let me go to the Prado. Or, oh, I'm in South Africa. I should see the Holocaust Museum in Cape Town or the Apartheid Museum. And, right. and my whole thing is don't see it as an obligation. Don't see it like a whole day adventure. Go for an hour. Go for 10 minutes. Go and explore in a way that's yours, opposed to the museum telling you how. And that's like, I don't know if you guys have been to Museum Hack. They do. I've heard about them, but I would have to go in disguise. Okay, great. uh, Let's do it. So you and me have a date (laughs) in New York or Los Angeles, and you'll be in disguise And you should experience that. It's one of the most amazing ways to see a museum. Because people, I think, as travelers, are confused about how to interact with a museum. Well, you know, if you think about the history of museums, uh, museums were not for everyone. Not everyone was invited in. The hours were limited. One of the great revolutions of the French Revolution was actually throwing open the doors of the Louvre, Mm. of extending the hours so that the working person could come. 
uh, experience their museum. And what are museums? We are storehouses in many ways. What we really are are uh, treasure houses of things that people care for. So this is the American Museum of Art. What is American art? Uh, it, it's a big definition. It's a varied definition. So we at the Smithsonian American Art Museum have a special duty. We cherish 44,000 works of art across four centuries, across all media. So we have from folk art to photography. We have craft to something called time-based media, so things made with video and, and lights and LEDs. We obviously have paintings and sculptures. We have prints and drawings. We have a definition of America that doesn't really reach all of the Americas. Some museums have a broader definition. And you and I spoke earlier about boundaries. Again, how do you define America? But it really is about the American experience. Artists capture something about the now and the contemporary that is also hopefully universal. And that's why it speaks to us across time, across materials, and uh, it invokes hopefully wonder, sometimes upset, and that's okay as well. We try to help our visitors understand a little bit of the time in which the art was created. We often try to talk about process. And uh, again, I think artists uh, speak to us through their own creativity. And um, when they do it very, very well, they stop us in our tracks. And they create something that's unforgettable and that sparks hopefully some combination of reflection and inspiration and a sense of wonder. That is the American experience. I mean, I chose to come and live here in search of that. And to me, part of that is the American dream. Like the idea of Americana, apple pie, cowboys, it's very limited. And I think that we're expanding. I'd like to think we're expanding as much as there's a current administration that's tightening on this very limited experience. I think that we as a nation of immigrants and people that have been here from the beginning as a combination of these wonderful people, we want to expand that definition in order to enrich our experience, the American experience. My best friend touched down this morning for the first time in his life to America and he landed in New York and his first impression was everyone feels part of the world. And it was such a, he's Dutch, and it was such a beautiful hmm. thought that I had like, I live in it, so I forget. But I was like, yeah, that's exactly America from here and everywhere. Yes. In, in many ways, we think of America as a young country, which of course does not take into consideration that Native peoples who were um, here for centuries and centuries what we also have to think about America is, in terms of, of the founding of modern America, is its place in the rest of the world. And so I think there was initially a bit of an inferiority complex, a sense that the grandeur of Europe, these great castles and cathedrals and these artistic and, and sort of intellectual contributions that came from Europe. And I think that was uh, a little daunting initially in America until the Americans in many ways realized or or came to understand this notion of American uniqueness. And it begins with the landscape. It begins with uh, the um, power and majesty of Niagara Falls. 
a subject matter that was much painted and, and photographed. So this sense of natural wonder and beauty and then captured by artists. And then you repeat this sense of wonder when you march across the country from the coastlines to uh, the um, Yosemite to the Grand Canyon. I love the way Ken Burns has described the American National Park. He says it's a uniquely American idea to take lands and forever make them private for the enjoyment of all, for the benefit of wildlife, for understanding our or nature and coming back to a place to refresh ourselves. And that was a pretty radical idea because coming to America was, wow, look at these endless timber forests. Look at these ores. Look at all these um, resources to exploit, to build with, whether it was ships or, or skyscrapers. And so to stand back and say, no, this belongs to us all, that, that's a wonderful sense of um, common need and common purpose. That is so beautiful. Those are the things that I think about America that I think a lot of people forget. I That's mean, why I, you have to travel, right, Daniel? Exactly. The but, I must travel, as our great Diana Friedland said. Indeed. And early on, the railroads understood that they would have an evolving purpose. Yes, they would have to connect this great country. They would have to determine places of settlement. Being on the railroad was being connected. And then later on, the railroads needed to bring not only um, materials across country, but they would need to bring people. They would need to invite people to explore, to put down roots, to grab land and, and make their fortune, this kind of manifest destiny of the country. And it also, frankly, spread people out across the country as they were pouring onto our shores, whether it was on the West Coast with uh, Chinese or on the East Coast with the Irish who arrived before the Germans. So the Germans were sent across country and, and to settle the Midwest. So again, artists were part of that storytelling of bringing people together to understand, hmm, I see a lighthouse. That must be New England. That must be the coast. Hmm, I see a barn. I see fields. That must be the Midwest. They kind of gave us the language for understanding America. That's why I want everyone to come here. I feel like if you understand that and then you set yourself out on America, your whole experience will be different. I mean, I feel that. I feel for the first time that I'm part of something. I may not have been born here, but I immigrated here and I feel part of that fabric. Uh, Daniel, you haven't touched upon this, but I think it's a little bit implied in, in the sense of America. And when you travel, one typically encounters the national flag. When you come to America, you encounter the stars and stripes everywhere. Right. Everywhere. And then other things that the world thinks of as Americans. So car culture. American car culture is unique. The scale of the place, again, back to landscape, suggests that we can have oversized cars that are open, that invite you to, to breathe in as you crisscross the country on, on endless stretches of road. Uh, artists, too, are drawn to cars, 
to road trips. I also think that there are subsets of American car culture that we should always be attentive to. How do people share their identity in their choice of their hubcaps or in choice of music or in choice of color? Wheel size. Wheel size or adornment. Uh, We think about the limits of travel because of discrimination. The um, Oscar award-winning movie Green Book, that was a reality for many people uh, in terms of their not being welcome and having to make routes and having a, a kind of a coded book for travel. Certainly women don't always feel safe traveling. And um, the LGBTQIA plus community struggle with those things still today. I don't know if you've seen um, Killer Mike. They've got a show that they were doing together on Netflix. And basically the premise is they were going to spend 24 hours in Atlanta only supporting black African-American businesses, meaning everything they do had to be owned or the CEO of had to be African-American. So no phone. They struggled to find a hotel. They had to stay at an Airbnb. They couldn't get into a car because no car company has a black CEO or owner. And I've been thinking about doing an LGBTQIA plus version of this. Hmm. Well, at least you can use your iPhone with right, Tim exactly, Cook Tim at Cook. the helm. And I could definitely find a gay-owned hotel in New York. But the idea of that, to replicate that on a journey when you travel, I think is genius. And that gives you a small window into that is how travel used to be, or that's how the experience was for African-Americans, Green Book, and et cetera. Right. And it's the diversity of America that makes it a whole. It is this notion that uh, we strive hopefully for a better union, that the American story is not complete. There are unwritten chapters. There are overlooked chapters. There are dark chapters that we must uh, reckon with. And then there's a question about what is your contribution to the American story? And we celebrate American creativity. Whether your work will end up at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, I don't know. Time will tell. Thanks for spending the morning with me, Stephanie. This has been such a delight. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out. Connect with us on Instagram at Everywhere Podcast, Twitter at Everywhere Pond, or on the website at everywherepodcast.com. I'm Daniel Scheffler, signing off. I'll be seeing you everywhere. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.